For the past four weeks, five weeks, um, we have had some pretty weighty topics here at Journey Baptist Church. Uh, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness, and we have learned that that includes all of us, um, right? And so uh, next week, I look forward to the good news of the gospel, the righteousness of God from faith for faith revealed. Um, Next week is going to be a very exciting moment for us. But today, this week, I have the joy of bringing our condemnation home. Uh, Romans 3, 9 through 20, we are going to see that no one is righteous, no, not one. Uh, Before we get there, I have an opening illustration, a story, if you will. Uh, Many of you saw on Facebook that Adam Lee and I went to Colorado. Uh, Adam Lee is my best friend. We've been best friends for years. Adam Lee loves to travel, and I've never gone on a trip with him. Not only have I never gone on a trip with him, I've never gotten him a Christmas present or a birthday present or anything. And so I was like, I really, I got to do something for him. Miranda and I are about to have a baby. This is my last chance. And so for Christmas, I was like, let's go on a trip. Let's do something crazy. Let's drive to the opposite side of Canada. Turns out that's like a two and a half day trip. So we went to Colorado instead. Um, But it was great. It was beautiful. Um, We hiked a mountain. It was called Flat Top Mountain. I've never hiked a mountain before. I've never been to Rocky Mountain National Park. And so that's an experience that I will cherish with Adam Lee forever. Um, But that's not the story. The story is, uh, on the way down from the mountain, I was exhausted. I was eager to get to my car. And so I looked at Adam Lee and I said, hey, man, I'm just, I'm a little faster than you. We're going downhill. Do you mind if I just go on ahead? And he was like, sure no problem. Okay, so I start, I'm trudging along, I'm going down the mountain, and then I I get to this part where I see the path that turns left, but then I see just straight down the mountain, and I'm like, well, that's where I gotta go, is down. I think I can just, I I think I can just cut and go down the mountain, right? I don't need the path, I can take a shortcut. And so I go down the shortcut, uh, and about 10 minutes of walking, about 50 yards or so, I'm like, okay, there's no path to be seen anymore, I don't really know where I'm at. I know I got to keep going down. Should I turn around and go back up? No, that would just waste all the effort I put in going down. I don't want to hike up anymore. I'm just going to keep going. So I kept going down the mountain. I kept going down the mountain. I had that same thought four or five times. Should I turn back? No, no, that would waste all of my time and energy. And eventually, I'm about a half hour away from the trail. Um, Probably, I I don't know how many yards. I'm not even going to guess. But give or take down about a half hour away from the trail. So going up about an hour away from the trail, no idea where it is. I'm lost. I'm lost on the face of a mountain. I'm alone. My phone is at 8%. I don't even have service to call on that 8%. And I realize, oh no, this is bad. I'm going to be a statistic. I'm, I'm going to be one of those guys that was life flighted from the face of Rocky Mountain National Park because I chose to go off path. Um, this is my, my warning for everybody, stay on the path, okay? They're there for a reason. You're not smarter than the path. The mountain will beat you. And so I'm lost. I'm alone. I'm scared. I, I make it up to the top of a rock, and I call Miranda, and I very honestly was like, hey, I love you so much. I don't know how I'm going to make it home. I'm really scared. I'm alone. Um, I love you. Um, and I'm just like, man, if, if I leave Miranda alone in this state with a baby on the way, like, the church will not forgive me for that. There will not be grace if I chose to get lost on a mountain on my own and I leave Miranda um, a widow, basically. So anyway, uh, I was lost, alone, and scared for about two hours. 
Um, I was climbing over rocks. I was climbing over trees. I was worried there might be a bear. I was just saying lots of little prayers like, Lord, please protect me. Lord, please keep me. Lord, make your smile shine upon me. Um, I, every rock that I tripped on but didn't roll my ankle, I was like, thank you, Lord, for protecting me. Um, but eventually, I saw the lake, and I was like, that's where I need to go. We started at the lake. Adam told me that there's a path that goes around the lake. If I can get to the lake, I'll be safe. And so I, I was walking down. There were some more big rocks, so I went around them. Another hour passed. I get to the lake. I'm safe on the path. I, I called Miranda. I was like, hey, I made it. I'm safe. I texted Adam. I made it to the car. I'll be waiting for you. Um, but the point is, I did not realize how beneficial that path was until I was off the path. I didn't realize how good of a thing it was to be safe and secure until I was scared and in danger. How glorious it was for me to find the path after being lost and alone for hours. And that is our sermon today. Our sermon today, the point of it is that we need to realize our spiritual state before God in order to receive the salvation that he freely offers. If we don't realize that we are enslaved to sin, that we are guilty before God the judge, and that we are incapable of saving ourselves, then we will not understand what it means to receive eternal life from Jesus Christ. We will not be changed from it. We will not walk in his paths. And so, uh, as I said, this is kind of the, the bringing home sermon of all of God's wrath revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. And my goal today, again, is to show us our spiritual state before God. Just like I didn't realize how great of a thing it was to be found until I realized how scary of a thing it is to be lost, I want it to show us today how glorious our salvation is by how depraved our state is. And so we have three points of our sermon today. We are enslaved to sin. We are guilty before God, and we are incapable of saving ourselves. We are in Romans chapter 3, page 999 in your pew Bible, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 20 today. We have a lot to get through. It's uh, hopefully your bulletin is a good guide to follow along, but I will start us off. Our first point, man is enslaved to sin. We are all under sin's power and deception, verses 9 through 18. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin, as it is written. Okay, so what then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. This is a rhetorical question. This points back to Calvin's sermon last week. The same Jews last week that were asking, do we have any advantage before God? And Paul says, yes, in every way. You were given the oracles of God. You had the covenants. You had the patriarchs. You had the promised land. Yes, you were better off. You had the advantage. Now those same Jews are asking, are we any better off before God? And Paul flips it on his head and says, no, not at all. Because you didn't use that advantage. Calvin had a great uh, quote last week that says, just because you're close to the finish line doesn't mean you've crossed the finish line. And that's where the Jews are finding themselves today. So he's still speaking to the Jews who had the accusation last week in verse 1 of chapter 3. They had the advantage, it failed to utilize it. But Paul uses that as a lesser to greater. He says, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Again, this has been the past four, five weeks of our preaching. All of chapter 1 and chapter 2 prove that we are all guilty in many ways. We all fall short of the glory of God. 
our first sermon was over pagan idolatry and immorality, the Gentiles, the non-Christians, the immoral individuals. Then we saw that self-righteous pride condemns us. Anytime we think we're better than others, we find that we fall short of the same standards we set. Then we found religious hypocrisy, being a whitewashed tomb, being a Pharisee, preaching don't steal and yet stealing, preaching worship God and yet harboring idols. And finally, we've seen that you cannot just bank on your heritage of being God's chosen people. Obviously, in first century context, that was the Jewish people. We have circumcision. We're here. But for us, it would be, I was born in the church. I was raised through the nursery. I went through VBS. I'm here. We can't bank on that heritage to think God will accept us. We have to have a personal relationship with Christ. And so all are under sin. All, Jew and Gentile alike, all of us today, you are under sin. As it is written, we're about to get into a plethora of quotations from the Old Testament, and and what Paul is doing here is now that we've had the example arguments, the the pagan immorality, the religious hypocrisy, um, the the pride and self-righteousness, now we're going to see that the scriptures testify against us. All of the law, psalms, and prophets testify against us as it is written the second half of verse 10 there is no one righteous not even one this quote comes from ecclesiastes 720 i'll be listing off a lot of old testament quotes today we will not flip to all of them i promise you that but ecclesiastes 720 says this there is certainly no one righteous on the earth no one who does good and never sins To be righteous is to be morally virtuous and perfect. We are not that. No one is righteous. No one is morally virtuous and perfect. And uh, that's a problem, because if we're not righteous, then we're unrighteous. And Romans chapter 1, verse 18 says the wrath of God is against unrighteousness. So if we're not righteous, if we're under sin, then we're under the wrath of God. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away, all have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. These quotations come from Psalm 14, 1 through 3, and 53, 1 through 3. Apparently this understanding that there is no one good, not even one, was so important that the psalmist wrote it twice, word for word. Look at what it says. There is no one who understands. Our thinking does not properly recognize God. Our understanding, even though he's revealed himself, his invisible attributes, his divine nature, his eternal power, we don't understand him. We don't recognize him as God. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Our desires do not properly pursue God. We are not born pursuing and seeking our creator and our relationship. He had to seek us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost because we were not seeking him. Until our hearts are changed, we don't desire him. So we have our thinking, we have our minds, and we have our hearts. This goes back all the way to the fall. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they obeyed the serpent, rather than their creator, they fell, they turned away from God and became worthless. Genesis 6, 5, says when right before God floods the world, God looked down and he saw that every intention of the human mind was evil from youth. And then again, Genesis 8, 21 Every intention of the human heart was evil from youth. All the way back from the creation origins, our hearts and minds have been corrupted from the fall. They have been evil. 
from youth. We don't understand. We don't seek God. We have turned away ever since our parents turned away. We have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Finally, there's no one who does good. This is an action. Our, our ways do not properly honor God. So we've had our thoughts, we've had our hearts, and now we have our actions, our ways, our paths. Uh, we're going to explore this more in later verses, but uh, it's important to understand that we don't honor God in what we do. And if you're like, I don't know, how, how have I not honored God? Well, anytime you've not honored your neighbor, you've not honored God, because your neighbor is made in God's image, and he calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. So anytime you've cut short your neighbor, anytime you've lied, you've cheated, you've stolen from your neighbor, you have not honored God. You have not done good against not only your neighbor, but against God and God alone have you sinned. Every thought, word, and deed is not righteous. Look at that word before we move on. All have become worthless. If something is worthless, what do you do? You throw it away. If something is worthless, you throw it away. If I have something in my house that is not of any practical value or sentimental value, I throw it in the dumpster. John chapter 15 says any fruit that does not produce, or sorry, any branch that does not produce fruit will be thrown into the fire. So if I think something is worthless and I throw it away, that is actually a reflection of my creator. When he finds individuals worthless, he throws them into the fire. Our unrighteousness earns that. We are under God's wrath and condemnation. And look at the individuality. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one understands. All have turned away. All have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You are not righteous. You have turned away. You have not sought God. You have become worthless. You do not do good. That is what Paul is preaching to us today. Let's continue. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is three psalms uh, that Paul is quoting to mash together a theology of our speech. Notice every part of our speech is corrupted. The throat, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. Every part of our speech is corrupted by sin. sin. That's Psalm 5, 9, 143, and 10.7. Uh, those are also at the footnotes in your Bible if you care to look at them later. But every part of our speech is stained with sin and wickedness. Why? Why are all my words evil? Well, it's because, as we already established, my heart is evil. My mind is evil. Jesus preaches this concept. I won't make us flip a lot of places, but I think a worthwhile passage is Matthew chapter 12, page 866, just a little bit back in your Bible. A tree is known by its fruit. Let me read this aloud as you're flipping there. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. A tree is known by its fruit. So Paul's using an illustration. If you plant an orange tree, it's going to produce oranges. If you, if you place, um, what are those trees called that just have the massive thorns? Locust tree. If you plant a locust tree, it's going to be full of those giant thorns. Those terrify me. Um, but a tree is known by its fruit. If you, produce, if you plant a good tree, it'll produce good fruit. If you plant a bad tree, it'll produce bad fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? How can you speak them? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So why is all of our speech corrupted? Because our heart is corrupted. 
verse 35 of Matthew 12, a good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, storeroom being the heart, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil, his heart. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. That's terrifying for me. I'm, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, if I'm judged for every careless word that I have spoken, I am guilty before God. If you have ever lied, if you have ever blasphemed, if you have ever tore down your neighbor, if you have ever cursed, if any part of your lips, your tongue, your throat, or your mouth has been corrupted by sin, you will give an account before God. Finally, verse 37 of Matthew 12, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Another word for acquitted is justified, righteous before God. Well, Paul is saying, we are not righteous by our words. Our words do condemn us. If a tree is known by its fruit, we have produced bad fruit with our lips. And that comes from the overflow of the heart. For from the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, slander. These things defile a person. That is also Jesus a couple chapters later speaking to the Pharisees. So every part of our speech is stained with sin and wickedness because from the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, so what? Why, why does that matter, that our, our speech is evil and wicked? Well, look at the results in our verses. Their throat is an open grave. It produces death. They deceive with their tongues. They lie. They cheat. Viper's venom is under their lips. It's poisonous. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. These are, these are terrible adjectives. Uh, nothing but death, deceit, and destruction comes from our speech. Our words bring forth the power of hell. James 3, 6, the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire. It itself is on fire from hell. That's the theology we're talking about. Paul is using our, our corrupted words to prove our hearts are evil, just as we did not seek God or understand him, so we've proven that by our speech. If our speech isn't enough, let's look at our ways. Uh, verse 15, 16, and 17 come from Isaiah 59, verse 7 and 8. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. We've seen that their hearts and minds are corrupted. We've seen that their speech is corrupted. Now we're seeing that their deeds, their paths, their ways are corrupted. Not their, sorry, our. Our thoughts, our hearts, our speech, our paths are corrupted by sin. We are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness is in our path. These are our purposeful choices and actions that are against the Lord. A lot of us grew up, or sorry, a lot of you grew up in church. I'm not one of the us there. And so this may be hard to, uh, to understand. When have my paths pursued a wretchedness? Um, Calvin mentioned that last week. That, that, and we're going to talk about that again. Here's an example. Um, Miranda and I are about to have a baby. Very exciting. I am not going to have to teach that child how to steal. He's going to be born knowing how to take cookies when I'm not looking. I am not going to teach, have to teach that child how to lie to me. He's going to automatically lie to me when I catch him in something he shouldn't be doing. It's not, we don't know if it's a boy or girl, just using him. Um, 
I am not going to teach that child how to, how to throw a punch if they are angry. Violence is in that child's nature. Lying, stealing, destruction. You don't have to teach a child how to do anything. They are born knowing how to do these things. So even if you've been saved since you were six, praise God, but from ages one through five, you were a sinner. You may have been restrained by grace, but left to your own devices, left to your corrupted hearts and minds and speech and paths, you would be the world's worst sinner. That's where we get the Adolf Hitlers. That's where we get the Joseph Stalins. That's where we get the Jeffrey Dahmers. They are left to their own devices of corrupted hearts and minds and speech and deeds. They are swift to shed blood. Our purposeful actions and choices are against the Lord. This path of peace from Isaiah 59, 7, and 8, this is God's created order of shalom. If you've heard the word shalom, it's the, the Hebrew word for peace. It's more than just peace as in there's no war going on. It's a wholeness. So it's not just the absence of peace. It's a, it's a wholeness. Or sorry, not just the absence of, of ruin, a wholeness of peace. This is a theme of Isaiah. The coming Messiah brings peace. And these verses are on your bulletin. Uh, the way of righteousness brings peace peace. God's faithful love brings peace. The new creation brings peace. From the start to the end of Isaiah, he wants this path of peace, and yet our purposeful actions and choices go against the path of peace. We are the reason we don't have peace. Humans make the sinful choices, not God. God has freely offered us peace, the way of peace, shalom, from creation. He has offered us peace, and yet we have turned aside we have become worthless. You have sinned against your creator. You have pursued paths that are wretched and full of ruin. What's the root cause of this? Verse 18, there is no fear of God in their eyes. The reason this is, is because we don't, we don't truly believe in a God who will bring us into account. We don't truly believe in a God who sees everything we're doing. That's what the Psalms say. The, the, the psalms which we've been quoting today uh, about how there's no one good, not even one, they give us the root condition. Psalm 10, verse 11, he says to himself, God has forgotten. He hides his face and will not see. Whenever he does a sinful action, he doesn't believe God will see him. What's more, verse 13 of Psalm 10, he has despised God. He says to himself, you will not demand an account. Not only does God not see our sinful choices, he won't judge our sinful choices. And then verse uh, 1 of Psalm 14, or Psalm 53, it was so important, it says it twice, is even more clear. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We don't believe in a God who will bring us into account. So that was a lot. That was... To be honest, the, the first point is the bulk of the sermon today, because if we don't realize we're enslaved to sin, then we won't understand that we're guilty before God, and we won't understand that we can't save ourselves. So the bulk of the sermon today is all of this law, psalms, and prophets, all of the scriptures testifying against us as sinners. Every thought, word, and deed is corrupted by sin. Our hearts are evil from youth onward. We are enslaved to sin. If you are enslaved to something, that just means you are obedient to it. Whatever is your master that you obey, you're enslaved to. 
Uh, I have a funny illustration for this. This is going to be a great hit for some people and a, a great miss for other people. The Incredibles 2 is a great Disney movie, in my opinion, right? Pixar. Um, the Incredibles 2, the villain is the screen slaver. He wants to enslave people to their screens, their phones, their televisions, their computers. Surely that's not a commentary on today's society, right? Like, we, we are not those people, okay? Um, but the way he wants to enslave them to their screens is he hypnotizes them. They're already on their screens, and he hypnotizes them. They get the eyes, the, the black and white circles. And after he hypnotizes them, he controls their minds. And once the screen slaver has their minds controlled, he can control their actions. The whole point of The Incredibles 2 is there's this screen slaver hypnotizing people, controlling their minds, d making people do his bidding. In The Incredibles 2, the, the family, the incredible family, they come in and they save the day. Jack-Jack has all these awesome powers. Man, it's cool. Um, but the point is, just like the, the civilians in Incredibles 2 were enslaved to their screens, we are enslaved to sin. Sin has hypnotized us. From youth onward. Our lusts want sin. And because it's hypnotized us, it controls our minds. Because I want that, I just think about it all day long. And because I think about it and I want it, I do it. It controls my actions. You, if you're not in Christ especially, you need to realize that you are enslaved to sin in order to accept freedom from Christ. Just like the Emancipation Proclamation came and ended the bondage of slavery, Christ has come and established the year of Jubilee and freed us from the chains of sin and darkness. If you are an unbeliever, you need to realize you are enslaved before you accept freedom. If you are a believer, you need to remember that you were once this way. Again, if you got saved at six, praise God. From ages one to five, you were a little sinner. I didn't get saved till I was 18. So I got to see some of those effects. I got to see the immorality. I got to see the depravity in my own life. And there's still residue of that. And all of you who are believers, even if you've been believers for a long time, you know you were enslaved to sin because you still struggled not to sin. You have that residue. You have that temptation. You have those choices. So you need to remember that before Christ, every thought, word, and deed of your heart was sinful. And if you are apart from Christ, you are still enslaved. And you need to realize that before you accept freedom. Okay, that was, that was a lot. That was a fire hydrant of the law, the Psalms, and the prophets explaining to us that we are sinful. I promise that was the longest point of the sermon today. Point number two. Because we're enslaved to sin, because our thoughts, words, and deeds are evil, we are guilty before God's judgment. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law. When Paul says whatever the law says, he is referring to everything we just read. That's why it's so important for us to understand we were this way. Or if you're not in Christ, you are this way. You don't understand God. You don't seek God. You don't do good. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now, quick caveat. 
This was new for me in my understanding of this passage. A commentary helps me understand this. This is really just the Jews. We're in a hypothetical conversation, uh, not a hypothetical one, a, an accusatory conversation, trying to make excuses. Are we better off? Do we have the advantage? What of circumcision? Paul's still talking to the Jews contextually. They are the ones under the law because they've been given the law. And the law demands perfection. It demands righteous perfection. Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy as I the Lord am holy. Holy means to be set apart, morally virtuous and perfect. Uh, Deuteronomy 27.26, anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is cursed. Anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice and cursed. Another way to say that is, if you don't do all of this, then you're cursed. And we can't. We can't do all of it. And the Jews couldn't either. They are under the law, so they are subject to the law. They are subject to the curse of the law because they couldn't fulfill it. But yet, every mouth may be shut, and the whole world becomes subject to God's judgment. This is, again, a lesser to greater argument. If the Jews are the holy, set-apart, chosen, beloved people by God, they're the people with morality. They're the people with the standard. They're supposed to be the, the, the first fruits of the harvest, as uh, Jeremiah said this morning. If they are acting in wickedness, look at these pagan nations. Look at these pagan nations that, that have no God, that have no fear of God before their eyes, that have no law constraining them. Even though the law can't save, the law is supposed to protect, and they, it did that to an extent for Israel. These pagan nations without a law, they are just depraved and immoral. We learned about that in Romans 1. And if they're not, if they're somewhat good, it's because they have that law written on their hearts and their conscience testifies against them. Every time the Gentile sins, he knows it's wrong because he has a conscience that God gave him. So this is a lesser to greater. Even though the Jews contextually are under the law, and I would argue today we Christians are under the law, so we're subject to its demands because we've placed ourselves under it when we came to Christ, the Gentiles are still subject to God's judgment because of their consciousness, because of their depravity in their own way. And look at it, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may be subject to God's judgment. Because we're all guilty, because we're all enslaved to sin, we are accountable to God. We have no excuse or explanation. Calvin used a great word last week. I'm going to steal it. There's no weaseling your way out of this. There, there's no arguing. There's no but. There's no excuse. Every mouth will be shut because we have sinned against the very judge himself. Can you imagine how terrifying that is if you have a uh, court date and you uh, robbed somebody and you... you get to the courtroom and the judge sitting in front of you who demands your verdict is the guy you robbed yeah that's horrifying instead of uh, so, so whatever the law says that you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect you are subject to it if you are not perfect if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, who by the law standard was blameless, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will be subject to God's judgment. We're going to do a demonstration that most of us are familiar with, but there's no better demonstration because it's exactly what Paul is doing. It's called the way of the master, right? Many of us are familiar with this. And, and it, it lays out this three-step process. The law says it, so it shuts our mouths, and it makes us subject to judgment. I'm going to give you an example. 
Uh, Ray Comfort will go up to people with a microphone and a camera and say, hello, how are you? Uh, <laughs> and then he says, have you ever sinned? Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I've told a lie. Have you ever been angry at someone in your heart? Yeah, I've been angry. Have you ever lusted after, after a woman? Of course I've lusted. Have you ever said God's name in vain, said OMG? Well, yeah, I've, I've done that. Well, then you are a lying, hating, which is murder, because Jesus says if you hate in your heart, you've murdered your brother. Adulterous, because if you lusted in your heart, you've committed adultery. Blaspheming individual. And these, these videos are incredible. Their mouths are shut. They have just confessed all of their sin because of the law, because of this standard that we, we all know we shouldn't steal and yet we steal. We all know we shouldn't hate and yet we hate. We all know we shouldn't curse and yet we curse. And so when you confront someone with that information, their mouth is shut. And then Ray Comfort asks them a very a simple question. Based on your own judgment, are you innocent or guilty? Guilty. If a criminal goes to jail because they are guilty, where should a sinner go if they are guilty? Hell. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. In the same way, the way of the master proves the standard of God's morality and thus proves our guilt. Whoever is under the law is subject to what it says. It shuts our mouths and it proves us liable to judgment. There's no such thing as a good person. There's no such thing as grading as a curve. I'm better than the guy next to me. It's, here's God's law. Have you fulfilled it? Because that's what it demands. So again, for, for the unbeliever in this room, you need to realize that you are guilty before God in order to accept forgiveness from God. You need to realize you're standing in the courtroom and the judge has his gavel and he says, guilty, before you realize that Christ comes in and he says, I'll take his place. I'll forgive him of his sins. And for the believer in this room, I have a little bit more unique application that Calvin helped me with. Um, we need to utilize the law's standard in our evangelism. The, the reason I thought it was helpful to do Way of the Master again is because Way of the Master is the best evangelistic tool, in my opinion, if done rightly. It can be done wrongly, but Paul is doing that. Paul is laying out the law's standard and proving our guilt. There, there are, you can work it in the conversation smoothly. It doesn't have to be a script. Practice it. Watch videos of individuals. Todd Friel does great on college campuses. Ray Comfort does good in one-on-one -on -one street evangelism. But we need to use the law because anyone will accept eternal life. If I go up to my neighbor and say, hey, do you want eternal life? Shakes hand, done deal. Good. He's saved. Walk away. But he's not changed by that. Anyone will accept eternal life. They need to realize they were guilty of eternal death before they accept eternal life. They need to realize how, how guilty they were in order to realize how good and sweet the forgiveness of Jesus is. So use the law in your evangelism, but have compassion from our earlier point that you too were once this way, that you too can't fulfill the law. Don't revert back to being the religious hypocrite from Romans 2. Use it, but use it correctly with compassion, as Paul is doing. Prove accusation in order to proclaim liberation. So we need to realize uh, that we are in slavery to accept free freedom. We need to realize that we are guilty in order to accept forgiveness. And our final point today, we need to realize that um, we are condemned in order to accept salvation. 
We are unable to save ourselves. We are enslaved to sin, guilty before God, and unable to save ourselves. Verse 20, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. This word justified, I'm going to go ahead and just take your Sunday, and I'm going to preach another 40 minutes on the word justified, because I love this. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, But I I love the doctrine of justification. I am so excited for Jacob's sermon next week. I'm going to try to leave it all on the table for him, try to set the ball on the tee. Um, But the word justified, since it's in our passage, we have to define it, means to be declared righteous, to be proven innocent, to be vindicated or acquitted in that courtroom setting. Well, we just learned that no one is righteous, no, not one. Therefore, we are not justified, okay? We've already established this. Now we're going to establish why we can't attain this quality. We can't attain the, the, the attribute of justified by ourselves, of innocent by ourselves, not only because of what we've done before, but even going forward. We cannot be justified by works of the law. Let's define works of the law, okay? Works of the law is any moral commandment given by God. Any commandment given by God that is a moral quality. The Ten Commandments are a phenomenal example. Don't take God's name in vain. Don't have other gods before him. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Honor your parents. Again, from ages one to five, you did not honor your parents. Just wanted to drive that point home today. Um, Because we've broken the Ten Commandments, just to keep it simple, there's more than ten, we can't be justified. Let's boil it down to what Jesus says. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. No one in here does that on a day-to-day basis. No one. Not for one day can you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not for one day can you love your neighbor as yourself. It's impossible. The rich young ruler said, I've kept all these commands from birth. That, that was a trick question. He hasn't. And you haven't either. And we've already established that using the way of the master. And I don't need to establish that you have not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And anytime you have failed to do that, and anytime you continue to fail to do that, you prove that you are not able to save yourself. You prove that you are guilty before God. No one will be justified in his sight by works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. We know what is right, and yet we choose not to do it. We talked about it today in Sunday School with Jeremiah. We know God's word, and yet we try to move around it for convenience sake, for comfort sake. We know what's right, and yet we choose not to do it. Therefore, if we are not justified, what does that leave us? Condemned. The law wasn't even meant to save us in the first place. So anyone who thinks, this goes back to that religious hypocrite. This goes back to that self-righteous individual in Romans 2. The law wasn't meant to save you. The law was meant to expose your sin so that you know your need of a savior. You need to realize you are condemned in order to accept salvation. Here's an illustration. I work at Discount Tire. Changing tires to the glory of God. Amen? I'm very sore all the time. Just going to throw that out there. Um, But 
uh, I have been trained by my manager. I have been trained by my employee mentors. I know how to change a tire now. I didn't know nothing about tires before. I still know nothing about any other part of the car. Don't ask me to fix it. Don't, a don't even ask me to change your tire because I can't without those big tools. I, I can't do it. Anyway, sorry. Um, if I, the law was never meant to save us, right? If I use the wrong tool to fix the tire, I have put that person in danger. I have not safely secured that tire to the vehicle. I am going to cause damage to the structural integrity of that vehicle in the long run, and ultimately I'm creating a very dangerous situation for that individual because their tire could fly off. In the same way, we have to use the law appropriately. It is meant to expose our sin and then correct us back on the right path. It is not meant to justify us because we can never live up to its standards. So we need to realize we are condemned in order to accept salvation. And if you are a believer in this room, you need to use the law for its intended purposes. You need to be looking at God's word, seeing how you fall short, repenting, asking for forgiveness, and then correcting that behavior, walking in new paths of peace. Out of gratitude, that we are not justified by our works, but that we are justified by Christ's work. So as we've been moving today through the text, we have established that we are enslaved to sin, we are guilty before God, and we are unable to save ourselves. We have realized that we are lost and need found. We have realized that we are enslaved and need freedom, that we are guilty and need forgiveness, and that we are condemned and need saved. We are not justified by our works, but let me tell you who we are justified by. We are justified by the works of Christ. We are not righteous on our own. Our works can never avail. In fact, our works are evil, as we established, apart from Christ, because our hearts and minds are corrupted. But Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago. He lived a sinless life, perfect, from ages 1 through 5 onward. He honored his parents. He never lied. He never stole. Not only did he um, not disobey the laws, he fulfilled the law. He gave to the poor. He served the needy. He loved the refugee. He proclaimed liberation to the captives. He was perfect and sinless. And yet he died a criminal's death on the cross. I talked about earlier how if you're in a courtroom and, and the, the gavel lands and it's guilty and you have to go to jail for the rest of your life, it would be like your big brother coming in and saying, I'll go in his place. Jesus didn't deserve to die on the cross. You deserved to die on the cross. I deserved to die on the cross because every thought, word, and deed I speak are evil. But Jesus died on the cross in our place. He was our substitute. He was our sacrifice. He was the Lamb of God, behold, slain for the sins of the world. But not only that, he rose from the dead three days later. If anyone ever argues why you believe in Christianity, why, why do you not believe in all the other gods? Because Jesus is the only person who's ever rose from the dead. He is God. He proved that. He proved all his claims are true, and he's the first fruits of our resurrection. If you in this audience are lost today, be found in Christ. If you in this audience are enslaved to sin, Jesus promises to give you a new heart and renew your mind that no longer desire sin in that way. You desire to follow and honor God. If you are guilty today, Jesus offers forgiveness. His blood blots out and covers your sins. They are cast into the bottom of the sea, the scripture says. And if you are condemned today, 
Jesus offers to save you from the wrath of God that is revealed against your unrighteousness and ungodliness. Trust in Jesus. The point of the last five weeks of preaching was to lay out the the blackness of our sin so that you could see the brightness of Christ shining in the salvation that he offers. Pray with me.